you know, as we move up the coast, there's, you know, it'll be a week or two between villages and we'll see a lot of, you know, natives uh, Inuit. And then as well as we'll probably see maybe some polar bears, you know, polar bears usually hang around where there's ice. Um, and we're expecting that we'll only get some ice maybe at the northern um, end of our trip. However, uh, you know, we're prepared. We've we've got that, uh, what's it called, polar bear fence that you set up with, like, fishing line. And if they walk close to your tent, it shoots a blank 12-gauge cartridge to wake you up and hopefully scare the bear. So we'll be setting what, that what up. What is this again? What, explain this to me. Sarah, have you ever heard of this? No, this is a new one for me. <laughs> Wait a minute. So it's a polar bear fence. Exactly. So explain yeah. this to me like I'm a five-year-old because I don't know what you're talking about. It's like a walking dead barrier. So you're camping in polar bear terrain. You go night-night. Polar bears don't go night-night. They walk to your tent. They trip a wire that you've set up, and it shoots a really loud bang off. Um, so the idea is when you go to bed at night, there's a fence around your tent that if anything were to come and walk towards your tent, it would uh, alert you before it got there. It's a early warning system for uh, dangerous uh, animals. I would never sleep. I would never sleep in Alaska in that situation. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, the chances are ultra slim where we are. She's doing the northern coast of Alaska, and that's going to be... I think where she's really going to want that to be set up, but it's also a precaution that, uh, you know, we can take and, and we will. Uh, and, the, you know, if you set it off yourself, all it is is a loud bang. There's no danger. Um, so, yeah. Broadcasting from the Woodpecker studio in the great state of New Hampshire, welcome to the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast where we discuss all things related to hiking and search and rescue in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Here are your hosts, Mike and Stomp. So Stomp, we're on episode 16 here. Yeah. We're getting old. We got a good one. We got a good one tonight, too. We're getting our driver's license. Oh, I hear some beer snapping there. Sorry, guys. <laughs> yeah. Crack it open, <laughs> no, Jeff. This, so, this is we the beautiful sound of so, beer. So Stomp, uh, I want to start the show off. You need to make a retraction. Oh, really? Why is that? You do. So I got some feedback. You know how I don't like feedback? I told everyone, don't give me any feedback. Well, I got some <laughs> feedback. Um, okay. We got listener questions a couple episodes ago. I don't know when it was. I think it was maybe episode 12 or 13. And yeah. you said something on the show. As a matter of fact, I caught this when I was re-listening before we released the show. And I even said to myself, I was like, I got to give Stomp a heads up that he may want to take that out. Okay. But we were talking about stealth campsites. And oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do you remember you were like, um, you were like, you recommended like Nash. So you recommended something else, but then at the end you threw in this sort of like comment that like, oh, if you go up to Nash Stream Forest, you can even camp above tree line, right? Sure, sure. Yeah, you, you pissed off the audience. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Because you can't. You, I don't even know why I didn't call you out on this. Like, you can't camp above tree line in Nashreen Forest. Hmm. So I don't know what you were thinking. But I did. You did. I broke the rules. Well, I, I'm I'm prone to break the rules occasionally, you know. Well, you better you better edit this part out. But um <laughs> I just wanted to get you, so we need to make a retraction so that the the co-hosts um 
trail group doesn't run us out of out of oh, the gasoline. good people of Kohas. Okay, yeah, but I think everyone's fine. One, uh, for a good friend um, had pointed out they were just like, hey, just a reminder that you actually cannot camp above tree line on the Nash Stream Forest, and that you have to stick to the dedicated shelter. So I think there's two mm. two shelters on the Kohas Trail. Right. Uh, by, and by that area. So um, this is your chance to give a retraction stop. Okay, sure. Um, I will take that to heart and apply it. Great, all right. And so I understand that. I mean, there's some fragile vegetation up there and stuff like that, but I'm always cautious. Yeah, yeah. And the bottom line is, is anybody that's into like backcountry stuff in the whites, um, trying to figure out like the camping rules and regulations, I think you, you need a PhD to, to figure all that stuff out, but we will, um, I'm going to just for the show notes for this one, I will post some additional info about the sort of the camping regulations for the white mountains. I'll also put in some details about the shelters on the Coahuas trail and, you know, we're not perfect, especially not stomp. So we apologize. Yeah. And, a, and another correction, actually, I think that we met on the Mount Washington road race in 2011. I'm hearing that from good sources that that was the year that we met so we'll oh, have to for, confirm that or not yeah yeah so you thought yeah. 2008 all right so it's <laughs> whatever year it was it was too long ago so <laughs> no kidding right <laughs> anyway all right so enough of this nonsense stomp apologizes and thank you for the feedback so sorry everyone. so sorry yeah um so we're gonna we've got a couple of guests with us tonight here so we've got sarah and jeff here and um and we're gonna get them to introduce themselves in a minute but i just want to stop this show is we're gonna do a deep dive and this to, i remember this was a couple of weeks ago probably about four or five weeks ago we're gonna do a rescue that happened on tuckerman and i remember i was the reason why this rescue sticks in my head is that i was sitting down to eat in my in-laws house in western maine yeah and my me and my brother-in-law was sitting there and we heard a helicopter come over like a big helicopter and i thought i was dreaming and i saw a coast guard helicopter flying over our little pond in brownfield maine and i was like that can't be good <laughs> something something bad's going on so Mm-hmm. Tonight we've got um, we've got a chance to sort of do a deep dive on that, but it got me thinking. Like we'll do the show intro in a minute, but you've done a couple of helicopter rescues, haven't you? Uh, yes, yep, for sure. I was involved with um, a major one in the Pemi, uh, multi day search in the Pemi, and uh, it was a Black Hawk. And you you were riding around in the in the helicopter? I wouldn't say I was riding around like joyriding, but it was a pretty succinct. <laughs> To and from, you know, it's like they, um, we train every year with um, Air National Guard and uh, make sure we know how to get in and out of the thing safely and how to buckle in and stuff like that. But during the search, they were ferrying us um, to distant locations. So they dropped me and several others out to Gio so that we could disperse and hit all the major drainages that were surrounding that area. So yeah, it was a really interesting ride up. Honestly, I don't think I'd want to make a habit of it, <laughs> and um, you know, to do it to do it when it's necessary, sure. But I'm not like looking to get on a Blackhawk. That's you know, for sure. Like when you a couple get off, thousand tons of metal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can imagine. No, uh, I've I don't know if I've ever ridden in a helicopter. I don't think I have. Like, but when you get off of those things, like I would always be afraid that like my head was going to hit the the blades. Do you like mm. duck down ridiculously to make sure that you don't? Oh, get hit? sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you have to duck and you have to have goggles on. I mean, earplugs, those things will exfoliate you like no cream ever could. Yeah, so, yeah, it's really a cool experience. 
Uh, but it saves a lot of time when you have somebody that's lost out there in the in the forest, especially the Pemi. They get everybody out there quick where they where they're needed, and uh, we can get to uh, business. Nice, nice. Well, that, that's yeah. good. So we'll probably maybe we'll do a deep dive in some other episode about your your helicopter situation. But tonight. Mm. Um, we're joined by our friends Sarah and Jeff to talk about a recent rescue that occurred on Mount Washington. Um, as I said earlier, this event um, you know, required a helicopter rescue. Um, it happened during the tail end of ski season on Tuckerman, uh, and it involved a serious injury. So uh, we're happy to have Sarah here to give us a firsthand account of how a fun day on the mountain turned into an unplanned rescue of a stranger. So Sarah and her friends were credited with jumping into action to help stabilize a seriously injured gentleman and get him to a spot where he could be extracted from the mountain. Um, so joining Sarah is our good friend Jeff, uh, who is a high mountaineer ski adventurer, a prolific hiker, a sea kayaker, and an all-around interesting dude who's going to share some additional cool stories with us um, about his adventures. Um, and I'm also going to get into a, a rescue that he was involved with. So I'm Mike. And I'm Stomp. Let's get started. All right. All right. So I think before we get into introductions here, uh, we got to do beer talk. So are you, are you drinking beer anything, talk. Stomp? Yeah, yeah. My folks are still here, living with us for a little while, helping them out. So I'm having a Mama Margarita. Say that three times fast. Mama Rita. All right. So you, you're getting a mar- Margarita made by Mama. All right. Mama so, Rita. That's, I think this is the fourth episode in a row that you've had a margarita. So. I know. Hey, it's warm weather, although it's like 49 degrees up here right now. Cool. How about you? Um, Another I- IPA? Yeah, I have an IPA <laughs> from Loophole Brewing Company, and it's called um, – so it's going to talk about some high mountains. So this is called a Moving Through Cashmere New England IPA. It's pretty hmm. good. It's pretty Cashmere good. is as in the Middle Eastern location? The country, yeah. I don't, is okay. Cashmere? It's not the Middle East. It's in, I'm not sure. I thought is it was it? – Yeah. I don't know. Sarah, do you know where Cashmere is? No, I don't think it's the Middle East. It might be more towards like Kazakhstan or something. I think there are big mountains in Kashmir. Yeah. yeah but I'm I think not it's... sure. Does anybody have one of those really high tech digital devices that everybody has anywhere that like we could look Google? It up quick? Like Google that's right in front of me that I <laughs> so anyway, But it's good. It's definitely a good IPA, so I recommend it. I never heard of this brewing company. Loophole Brewing out of out of Norwood Mass. So Sarah, are you drinking anything tonight? Or are you? Uh, I am. So I'm drinking a, a Harpoon Camp Wana Mango. Oh, nice. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> I had to go what with the classic <laughs> summer beer. Nice. Yeah. Very good. And then, uh, Jeff, what are, you, what are you drinking tonight? I heard you crack something open earlier. Yep. I'm uh, Stone Face yeah. Brewing IPA, just your you know standard IPA that they make. Uh, it's a little high test, though, 7.2%. So should be good Ooh, that's a good one very good yeah i think oh, I've, nice. I've had a stone face before so i'll ask you if you guys can just send me the details i'll put those in the show notes so we can link them sure mm-hmm. yeah yeah i saw your uh, story up on Insta about your ipa there how to keep your beer cold i thought that was pretty cool but i but you forgot a, a phase i did the last phase the fourth phase where you take the beer out you open it and you pour it on the ground because <laughs> it's an IPA. Oh yeah. yeah so. Well, for, for the audience's sake, I I did a I did a, uh, a post on our Facebook group about using a, a three liter water bladder to keep our beer cold. So um, you can go on the the group. I'll actually I'll post the link in the show notes so people can see. But 
I was pretty impressed with myself. Great idea. <laughs> yes. Oh yeah. All right. So Stomp, I guess the next thing on the on the agenda here is recent hikes. I've got a couple I've got to I have to cover here. So do you, you have anything you want to start with? Yeah. Well, yeah, I finally um, made it up to Greenleaf Hut, thank God. And I did it without poles and I, I feel like I'm I really took a corner on this hike. I I pat myself on the shoulder, I, I sort of crushed it. And I felt like I could get back on the litter and carry somebody. So I think I'm really moving ahead, full steam ahead now. I'm really pumped about it. That's great. I mean, that's short distance for me, but I mean, after a big surgery, it's just the biggest thing right now is cardio. So I think physically the, the joint's stable and I'm moving ahead. So big plans coming. That's good. Was that, was that a qualifying hike for for the... Uh, yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah, it was beautiful. Yep. Up uh, Greenleaf Trail. And uh, boy, big difference with the snow. There was a huge thing of uh, monorail there, but it's all gone now. Nice. It's like all dry. Is the hut open? Is it fully open now with people staying there? I don't know if they were staying there. I believe they're they're hosting people, but um, yeah, I mean they they limit people coming in and out unless you need, you know, some emergency or some food. I mean, one of the uh, caretakers came out and gave some of the members some beautiful brownies. It was delicious. And uh, obviously, you can get your water outside, uh, but things are things are coming back to normal up there. How about you? Uh, I have gotten out. I think I talked about. Like, uh, I think I've got. I'm two hikes behind on the podcast here, so I've, I'm working on my my lists. So I did number twenty three on the terrifying twenty five. So I went into the ice gulch. Have you you haven't done, have you ever done that? The Ice Gulch, it's in Randolph. I have not done it. I've heard a ton about yeah, it. Yeah, it's a weird hike. It's cool. It's it's just an interesting hike. It is um like a it's in the Randolph Town Forest. It's yeah. like a six or seven mile loop, and there's a mile and mile or so section called the Ice Gulch, which is just let's this rock field, and the first like quarter mile of it is hit by the sun, so it's just rock scrambling. But then you get to the back What's the grade? Oh, it's gradual. Is it pretty steep? It's not steep. Is it really? No, it's not. It's it's just like there's a uh, there's a large section, maybe about a half mile section, where it's just rocks that are covered in moss. Okay, so uh, it doesn't get a lot of sun, and there was a fair amount of snow still in there. It's just slippery. I was by myself, so I was kind of working without a net. So I just was in the back yeah. of my mind. I was like, I just can't get injured because. I do this dumb podcast and I can't, I can't be on a search and rescue. So. People, people are relying on you, Mike. They are. They are. Cause I can't host this by myself. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, the, so that was good. <laughs> so I'm at 23 of the terrifying That's awesome. 25. And then I actually went over later in the day and did Pine Mountain in Gorham, New Hampshire, which is on the 52 with the view. So that was mm. number 49 for me on the 52 with a view. That's a beautiful little mountain. That's like the, the, what, what popped into my head about Pine Mountain is that it's very similar to when we hiked uh, Mount Martha in Owl's Head is that like it would be an awesome place to hike in the fall for fall foliage because it just looks literally mm. right out on Mount Madison and it's got to be a, an amazing view there. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I've seen pictures of it, but I've never been there, but that's that's a great area in general. Yeah. Yeah, easy. Beautiful hikes. How about you two, Sarah, Jeff? Any hikes recently? Not since Memorial Day weekend when I went up to Tux. (laughs) 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 Regrettably. (laughs) You had enough, huh? Yeah. (laughs) Said we're done for a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, we'll do a deep dive on that that trip. Okay, how about you, Jeff? Anything? Yeah, actually, I uh, went out with uh, uh, 
a couple of friends to Flat Mountain Pond just to spend an overnight and hang out at the pond. Um, and that was mm-hmm. uh, two weekends ago, and that was great. Um, good way to cool off in the you know super hot weekend we had. I was going to say, Mike, excellent call with Ice Gulch. I mean, you basically get free air conditioning, um, you know, at the end of that hike. So that, that's pretty nice. Um, but yeah, Flat Mountain Pond was great. There was a bunch of people there. You know, it's a pretty easy five mile, I think like 1500 feet in. Um, and yeah, there's, there's a canoe there now, which I guess I probably shouldn't say on this podcast, but <laughs> nice. Hey, there's some, some guys carried one up and, uh, all it needs is paddles. Cause I think somebody burnt the paddles, uh, for firewood, but yeah. Uh, great hike up there. Oh, geez. That's funny. <laughs> wow. That's interesting. I, I I can think of a few people that would have done that. They'll go nameless. Yeah. Yeah. I've never been to Flat Mountain Pond. I got I to gotta get out there. I've, I've been over there to Sandwich Notch in that area, but I think I just bailed out on going to the, the yeah. pond area. Yeah. Well, it's a great- That was my- I, I bushwhacked flat. That was rough. It took me three attempts. It was like midwinter, sub-zero, deep snow, <laughs> coming from Route 49. It was just- yeah, it was rough. That does sound rough. Deep snow, middle of winter bushwhacking. <laughs> I'll, I'll pass on that, man. More power to you, though. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, though, yeah, you know, if you've, if you've got new people, you know, getting into <laughs> backpacking, Flat Mountain Pond is, yeah, one of the one of the best ways to go. Super easy hike in, great views, and you don't have to climb, you know, 6,000 feet up to get, get uh, you know, a good campsite. So, yeah. Right. Yeah, a fairly easy grade to get into it, too, if you're taking that primary trail in. Right. Bushwhacking in the winter, mm. I don't know about that, but yeah. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, let's get into official introductions here. So, um, like I had said in the opening, um, Sarah – so, we're here with Sarah and Jeff. Um, Sarah is here to pr- provide some details about her experience in helping with the rescue of a skier in Tarkamin. Uh, but I wanted to get a little bit of background, so we're going to grill you a little bit, Sarah, so get ready. Um, and my first question I typically will run with all guests is, you know, if you could tell us a little bit about your background and a little bit maybe about your, your experience related to hiking. Sure. Um, so I actually only started hiking um, about five years ago when I moved up to Boston for grad school. Okay. I went to undergrad down in Virginia Tech. So that's in Blacksburg, like southwestern Virginia, right around the AT. So I did, you know, McAfee's Knob, Dragon's Tooth a few times throughout college, but never got into anything serious. And then actually my first year of grad school, my friends and I went up and we did a three-day, two-night trip to the Bonds. And that was like my first Mm. real backpacking trip, you know? And it was super fun, but I was just totally demolished by it, you know? So sore, so tired, didn't know what (laughs) hit me, but just fell in love with the White Mountains and found a great group of friends who go up there all the time and just kind of kept tagging along with them and yeah so since then been pretty regular up in the whites yeah and do you do a lot of day hikes or do you do more overnight stuff typically day hikes day hikes yeah. are you uh you uh, i'm a big list geek do you do any of the list or do you not care about that i have a few written down but i'm not super i want to be able to do it for the rest of my life so i'm like okay you know i'll space it out a little bit not try and knock it all out in one year or two years or anything yeah, yeah, exactly. I've been doing it for, I've been working on my stuff for like eight years, but yeah. um, it is like, I do, I, I kind of cringe when people are like, oh, I finished my 48 and I'm done. It's like, no, there's, there's way more to it than that. But, mm-hmm. So you get the right attitude. I'm just, yeah. I'm a little crazy about my list. So 
Hmm. So, Sarah, this is a search and rescue show. So we're going to talk about a search and rescue that you were involved with. But one of the questions I'm always interested in is, have you had any close calls yourself? Have you been any 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 situations where you, you almost had to call for a rescue? I actually haven't. I've been really lucky that no one that I've been with has ever gotten seriously injured besides, you know, a trip and, you know, scraped knee or, you know, busted elbow or something. Um, we've been pretty fortunate, so... Nice. Well, Good. hopefully this doesn't, this coming on the show doesn't bring you any bad luck. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, welcome. So we're going to, we're going to get into a deep dive on the, uh, this Tuckerman rescue that happened a couple of weeks ago in a minute, but I'm going to hand this over to Stomp and he can, he can cover introducing Jeff. Yes, this is, this is the first time I get to introduce Mr. Rogers. Isn't that cool? Mr. Rogers is here. Yes, I am. <laughs> you know, I have to tell the audience that uh, Jeff and I go way back. You know, I think we met way back in social media circles, and from there, it's been just year after year of seeing Jeff post amazing pictures, whether it be him skiing down North Tri Slide, or you know, you name it, or just traveling the world, tackling some of the biggest peaks. But um, Jeff, tell me a little bit about how you got into skiing, how you got into hiking, and uh, what you've been up to, and where you live, and all that good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for the kind words, first of all. Um, oh, you bet. Yeah. Uh, how I got into uh, skiing and hiking and all that kind of stuff, I gotta—I really have to be uh, thankful for my parents. They—they they brought me into that as a young age, right? My dad hauled me up Mount Kearsage, kicking and screaming up Mount Monadnock. Uh, <laughs> I think I actually walked the full one from Mount Monadnock. Uh, but yeah, I was really, really young. Um, and of course, you know, my dad, he was an avid outdoorsman. So he brought me to Mount Sunapee, uh, which is, uh, you know, in uh-huh. southern New Hampshire. That's that's where I learned to ski. Um, and at first, you know, I used to grab my ankles and run and ski down just straight down the whole mountain. And now, uh, yeah, I've taken that obviously to uh, much bigger mountains and done a lot of different ski touring in the, in the recent years. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely, mm-hmm. you know, stemmed from my parents. And, you know, I've just tried to progress in multiple different outdoor, uh, you know, disciplines, whether it's skiing mainly, that that's kind of what my passion started out as, um, you know, and I'm getting into sea kayaking and I've always been hiking and backpacking because that's, that's kind of your foundation. You know, if you're going to do any long-term adventure, long-term expeditions, just being comfortable spending a lot of time outside and sleeping outside, that that's really where you learn your fundamentals. So. What was your first uh, grand ski adventure? What would you say? Uh, well, you know, it really depends on the mindset at the time, right? So my first time in Tuckerman Ravine was, you know, absolutely mind-blowing. Um, I really didn't know what the whole, <laughs> uh, you know, fuss was about, about carrying your skis in. Um, you know, I thought that was just like, why would I carry it when I can go skiing at the resort? But, yeah, eventually, you know, I, I was mm-hmm. part of the UMass Outing Club, uh, UMass Amherst, where I went to college, um, we had a good group of guys uh, that you know were open to go ski Tuckerman Ravine with me, and you know we hiked in resort gear, you know a bunch of stuff we didn't need. It was a beautiful <laughs> spring day. I was carrying a parka for like negative twenty degrees. So anyway, you learn a lot, yeah. and that that was one of the most uh, definitely one of the biggest life changing days in terms of skiing. But, um, if I'm going to give the crown jewel, I will say Denali, uh, when I was 21 was definitely the, the big, big trip that, that kind of conquered them all and set me on my path there. That's fantastic. Have you had any, um, close calls or any search and rescue related events or anything? Uh, I, that, uh, you look back on and say, whew. 
personally, I haven't been, you know, devastatingly injured myself. You know, I've gotten, you know, a burn in the back country or like broke my finger, but nothing that was really a showstopper that required a search and rescue. And uh, as far as participating in them, I think we'll get to that a little bit later in the show. So, yeah. Yeah. I got to tell you, just to go back to your, uh, your expertise. I mean, some of these local mountains, in my opinion, it's like I almost get the impression that Jeff thinks they're like uh, going to the local quarry or something. Because there was one time he and I uh, hiked up the Watcher up in Franconia. It was just like walking in the backyard for Jeff and every 10, 15 minutes, we just pop a beer and crack, <laughs> crack a beer open and sit down and chill for a while. And it's like, yeah, it's just uh, your attitude about the mountains and just your expertise is so great and your confidence up there. So it's great to see you crushing it still. Yeah, that was a fun hike. I remember that was right after the uh, triathlon, oh. <laughs> I think. So that's, that's right. Yeah. Decom- decompression. Yeah. So Jeff, I think you had kind of alluded to this. So just to give the audience some background. So, Jeff has been friends, you know, Stomp and I and Jeff have been friends for a long time. And Jeff had said, you know, hey, I, I, I'm friends with Sarah. She was involved in this rescue on Tarkaman. So we wanted to bring both of you on to talk a little bit about um, obviously the Tarkaman rescue that we'll get to. But I had already, Jeff, had you on the list of people that I wanted to get in on the podcast. And specifically, one of the things I was interested in is that, you know, I collect all of the um, media reported search and rescue events that happen in New Hampshire. And, you know, a lot of times I'll hear different stories, sort of anecdotes about situations where rescues will happen that don't involve any sort of search and rescue teams. It'll be like hiker, a hiker like runs into another hiker and helps them out. And I've always sort of had this theory that like that happens like probably way more than we realize is that like you'll be out there hiking and you'll run into somebody that gets in trouble and you'll, you know, you'll help them out with water or you'll help them out with like just sort of getting them out there, taking their pack or, or whatever. And my theory is, is that probably it's around equal number of sort of these hiker, hiker rescue situations as there are actual search and rescues that happen. And you, I remember like a couple of years ago, you told me a story that you and our other friend, Alvaro, who we've talked about before, were involved in a, a nighttime rescue of a father and son. I think it was up in Maine. So I wanted to get you on here to talk a little bit about that story because I thought it was like one of the crazier stories I've heard in, you know, in, in, in my time sort of paying attention to search and rescue. So, um, if I recall, this you were involved in helping this father and son out. Probably a, it was a couple of years ago now, right? Yeah, twenty sixteen actually. So yeah, twenty years back for sure. Wow. So yeah. can you can you just sort of refresh my memory because I can't remember all the details. I think that you and Alvaro were pursuing like the New England sixty seven list, and you were going up on like what was it like a Friday night or something or midweek where you were going to go hike somewhere. Yeah, exactly. So, um, first of all, thank you, Alvaro, for driving all the way to Mount Abraham in Maine. That is quite the tough drive <laughs> on a Friday night after work. So, yes. um, just want to give credit where credit's due. Uh, but yeah, so Alvaro and I were, you know, working on the New England 67. That's the 4,000 footers in New England. Um, and we were getting close to the end. So, we were really excited trying to bang out a bunch of mountains in Maine. Um, and we started up. Uh, I think about like five, six o'clock after work driving up and we ended up getting to the trailhead, which is the fire wardens trail up Mount Abraham, super uh, well-trafficked 
um, you know, default trail for anybody who's going up Mount Abraham. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we're driving down the dirt road, we're banging in the trees and stuff because the roads up there are pretty crappy. Um, we get to the trailhead, <clears throat> you know, we unload the car, we're getting our backpacks on, getting our final stuff going, uh, getting ready to hike in, turn on the headlamps and we start hiking in. And our plan was, you know, it's it's 12.30 a.m. at this point. So we're just looking for the nearest water source to camp at. Um, we're just going to make camp as soon as we find some water, uh, just so we can refill in the morning and then get going when we can hike, uh, you know, during the daylight. Um, and as we're hiking in, <clears throat> um, you know, Alvar and I are just talking, you know, talking about hiking or whatever. And we all of a sudden hear, are you looking for us? Um, and, you know, Alvaro didn't say that. So I'm, you know, immediately pretty concerned. Um, and as I walked down the trail, I, I actually turned my headlamp onto the super bright mode. And I have one of those ridiculous headlamps that I use for, you know, skiing at night. So it, it shoots super far. And down the trail, I see uh, father, son cuddling, laying on the ground. Wow. Um, now, when, so you, Alvaro, um, when you guys pulled up, did, were there any other cars that were parked in that area? Yes, there was one other car. Yep. All right. That's a good point. Yeah. So that was their car. Good. And did you figure that, did you just figure they were camping? Yeah. You know, I, I hate to make assumptions based on the trailhead. You know, I, people do a lot of different stuff. You know, we hiked in at midnight. So, um, yeah, we just assumed they were out, you know, enjoying the woods like we were. So you you and Alvaro, you're hiking in and all of a sudden you hear this random voice saying, are you looking for us? And then right. you've got your 700 lumen headlamp <laughs> blasting. And then you, so, so you see these 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 two people. Right. Yeah. So they're laying right next to the trail. You know, you could take two steps and be exactly where they are. Um, and they're laying on the ground, both very, I wouldn't say violently shaking, but visibly uh, shivering to the point where you would be immediately concerned if you, you know, walked up to somebody like that. Yeah. Well, what do you think the temperature was? Uh, so I actually have this written down. Uh, <laughs> the temperature was uh, about 40 degrees is what the, the post I made says uh, back then. So, and when we woke up in the morning at first light, it was in the thirties. So, wow. Wow. So what, yeah. uh, what do you do when you see in these two shivering people? Right, right. So uh, immediately we walk up and, you know, we start asking them questions, um, trying, just trying to get an idea if they're, you know, all mentally there. Um, cause they, you know, immediately started talking to us. So the next thing you think is right. Hypothermia, what stage are they in? It looks like they're able to communicate. They're visibly shaking. Um, and they're able to stand up and, you know, they're not losing their balance. So that's kind of the assessment I initially made in my head. And I had just come off a wilderness first responder course. So I'm not sure that that would be the immediate thought, you know, moving forward now because i'm a little rusty on those skills but yeah. back then yeah i was going kind of through the uh the unlock codes of kind of how serious is this situation um so what we did is you know we're we're hiking into backpack i i pulled out my puffy um immediately threw it over the the child that was there and he was i don't know probably 12 or something you know short little guy shivering and his dad was um also shivering and alvaro gave him uh his puffy um and then what happened was we just escorted him right back to the car i think after the mile or so of walking they you know generated a lot more metabolic heat while yeah. they were you know in the puffies and got warmed up um but 
it, you know, what they were wearing um, was just, you know, low cut hiking shoes, cotton socks, um, your average cargo pants, and then a t-shirt. Um, and that was all they had. Did dad give an explanation? What did, what did you guys yeah. have to say? I mean, he must've been like pretty grateful, but probably pretty like uh, afraid you were going to call like DSS on him or something. Well, yeah. The first thing he said is, uh, I hope you didn't make contact with my wife because she's going to kill me. Yeah. That would probably um, be my first reaction <laughs> too. <laughs> right. But yeah, what happened was they were hiking down from Abraham um, and they just, you know, overextended their timeline and in the main woods uh you know this is end of september uh it gets pretty cold and it gets really dark when you're in the woods you know there's a good amount of canopy that even if you do have some moonlight um you know it's it's too dark to navigate um so what happened was they just lacked the proper a way of uh, illuminating the woods whether it's a phone or a headlamp or just something a flashlight um, they just were not carrying anything to do that. So immediately when it started to become pitch black, uh, they pulled over on the side of the trail and they said they uh, decided to wait till morning while huddling each other. And, you know, they were they were shivering right after midnight. So, you know, that's probably another five hours at least until first light. So I really don't know if that would have turned out well. Um, yeah, I was just, I was going to ask you that. So you've taken a wilderness first responder course, like in your assessment, like they would have gotten a lot deeper in the hypothermia and it's questionable whether or not they would have been able to, to get, get up and moving even when it was like, oh, and if, if, if they got too deep, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. So with their current condition, five more hours in the cold, I think they would have had, yeah, trouble, you know, balancing, trouble creating, you know, cognizant thoughts, things like that. And, uh, you know, they were already lost in the woods before that. So them getting out, yeah, it could have been definitely a toss up. Um, So I'm glad we were there to just walk them back to their car. Yeah. So like basically like having a headlamp and then your down jackets pretty, it's not, I don't think I'm exaggerating by saying like you, you very likely could have just, you know, saved both of their lives. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that might've been the case or they would have been, you know, terribly hypothermic and the next hiker along would have, uh, you know, had to help them out similarly or even worse. Um, but yeah, luckily, you know, we, we were able to walk back to the car they got the heat blast in and I just told the dad, like, look, you know, it's if you're taking your son out here, um, you've got some more responsibility. Right. So you want a headlamp, you want a coat, extra layer, a water bottle. Um, he had a backpack. But the only thing in it was an empty, you know, Poland Springs water bottle and some empty sandwich bags. So, wow. I wonder um, if the five or six people listening to this dumb podcast, maybe <laughs> someday like the person that you save would actually like reach out to you or something. Cause that's a crazy story. Did they, you, you didn't like think to get their license plate number or exchange information or anything. They just wanted to get the heck out of there. Yeah. Frankly, I think Alvar and I were a little, uh, you know, it was probably like one thirty or 2am at this point. We just wanted to get in the tent and go to sleep, you know? So we helped them out and then just focused on getting right back to that water source and going to bed. Oh, so you, you actually, then you hike back up a mile to get back to the water source and set up camp. Right. Yeah. Cause I, you know, you don't want to be camping like directly <laughs> at the trailhead, you that know, was my question. this probably isn't uh, a legal campsite either, but uh, you know, it's better than camping 
right where the trail. I won't tell anybody. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. Wow. So, so the, I always like that story when I remember when you had posted that and when we talked about it, you know, and I think we talked about it when we were hiking one time. That story to me has always stuck in my head because like I said in the beginning of this, like I have this theory that there's a fair amount of rescues that go on. Matter of fact, there was a guy that posted something on one of the one of the the 4000 footer sites where he was doing like a Zealand bonds traverse and he came upon somebody that had no water was sort of dehydrated and delirious and had to basically give up their hike in order to make sure that this person got out safely. And I think that that stuff happens way more than people realize. And it's one of the reasons why I carry a splint with me. I carry an extra headlamp and the, the lesson that I get from this is like nine times out of 10, like anybody that's listening to this podcast is probably going to be proactive enough to have the safety gear that they need. Um, what you're doing by carrying that stuff is probably more likely having it available to help somebody else that just doesn't have that knowledge. So I don't know, Jeff, if you have any other takeaways from, from this story. Well, no, I just want to say I completely agree that I think a lot of search and rescue scenarios are prevented by prepared hikers, right? I mean, I'm not the only one who's found somebody in need and brought them out of the woods. So I think, yeah, you're, you're totally right where that's underestimated. I think a lot of stuff goes without being reported. And, you know, back in a couple of years ago, a lot of this stuff wasn't even like posted on Facebook. So people weren't aware that, you know, if, if one of their friends got involved with a situation like this, they, you know, may not have known. So, yeah, I, I definitely think the takeaway here is just, you know, carry insulation and light. It is just an unbelievably helpful thing um, any season, you know, whether it's for you or somebody else. Yeah, exactly. So if anybody's listened to this and they've ever heard someone tell a story in secret saying that, hey, one time I took my son hiking and we almost got we almost got killed because of hypothermia, but these two random guys came along, put us in touch with those people. We'll do a Dr. Phil show with them and Jeff. <laughs> yeah. Who gets so, to be Dr. Phil? I don't know. I don't know. We'll <laughs> figure that out. Stomp probably. But um, but that is a cool story. So um, I definitely wanted to cover that. And, and it's it's an interesting one. And it's, you know, we hear our, everything about the media reported stories, but we rarely hear anything about these, these random rescues. So nice work, you and Alvaro. But um, I did want to transition now and, you know, Stomp, I think you can, you can take point on this with you know, we want to move into the story of uh, the rescue that happened uh, a few weeks ago on Tuckerman Ravine. Uh, we have Sarah here, who was one of the first on the scene involved in it. So, Stomp, why don't you you take over this segment? I've been talking too much. I just want to give a brief overview of Tuckerman Ravine uh, because, I mean, we have listeners pretty much all over the world now. I mean, we're a budding podcast, but we have listeners in uh, Germany, the UK, India, uh, South Africa, you name it. It's pretty impressive. Uh, there's one listener in Poland. So whoever you are, hello, my friend in Poland. Um, so stop, for those that may me, not be... Um, I actually <laughs> yes, sir. know who that one listener in Poland is. It's a co-worker of mine. So I'll, I'll make sure that she knows oh, that on. you said thank you. <laughs> is she physically yeah, in yeah, Poland? Out. So. I'll let her know that you said. Oh thank my you. God, that's yeah. fantastic! Sorry. How about the uh, one? How about the one person in India? <laughs> it's a coworker of mine too. So I've got it covered. <laughs> oh, you're shattering my dreams. Oh man. Okay, but hey, there's plenty in the UK. 
there's lots of folks in uh, Europe. So anyway, we have thousands in America, North America, Mexico. Pretty neat. Anyway, for all those people that may not be familiar with Tuckerman Ravine, Tuckerman is southeast aspect of Mount Washington. It's a hugely popular destination for hikers and skiers, boarders alike year-round. The spring skiing lasts into late June and even into July because it averages about 55 feet of snow plus per year in this bowl. Because right above it, you have Mount Washington, which rests at 6,288 feet, and it just generates a massive amount of snow. Avalanche are very common in the bowl. I mean, 10 deaths since the 60s, I believe. You can access Tuckerman by Pinkham Notch, which is off of Route 16, just north of North Conway. From the floor of Tuckerman Ravine, you can actually hike up and then ski down various uh, chutes, or you can just go from the floor down the Sherburn Ski Trail, another 1,800 feet or so, back to Pinkham. It's a three-sided bowl, more or less, with a central headwall facing east towards the Wildcat uh, excuse Range. Excuse me, stop. There's, Did you just yeah. call the Shelburne Trail the Sherburn Trail? I think I misread it because it's okay. my handwriting. I'm just making sure that the pronunciation is correct. <laughs> Close enough. Now, there's, Close enough. there's a left gully, which is considered the easiest, and then it uh, progresses as you head to the northern side of the bowl towards the right gullies. Um, there is the chute, which drops be- between two large cliffs. There's what's called the ice fall, which is a 55-degree drop with cliff jumps of about 25 feet. There's a trail called Sluice, which is actually featured in this story that we're about to dive into. And that's a bit easier, quote-unquote, with an average grade of about 40 degrees. Here are some of the heights. Pinkham Notch, the starting point is at about 2,000-foot elevation. Hermit Lake Shelter which is near the the foot of the headwall, is at 3,900 feet. The floor of the headwall itself is 4,400 feet. And then the top of the headwall is 5,100 feet. So these are numbers that will come in handy when we talk about this story. And again, the summit of Mount Washington, 6,288 feet. Let's dive into some White Mountains history, shall we? A um, little bit of history. It was named after a botanist. Anybody a botanist here? Uh, no, I guess not. Okay. <laughs> I wish. Yeah, hey. Um, Edward Tuckerman. And this person was in the 1830s and 1840s looking at uh, rare flowers in the ravine. Pretty interesting. The New England Ski Museum says that the first use of skis on Mount Washington was by a German in 1899. And then John Apperson was the first skier in Tux back in April of 1914. The very first person that actually skied the headwall itself was actually two Dartmouth students back in 1931. And then there are several deaths that are listed. The first recorded death was by falling ice back in 1886. The first ice fall was 1936. And then this is something that happens yearly. People fall into crevasses as well. And the first crevasse death was 1940. So it's a dangerous area to begin with. Um, so when people go to ski in this area, you really have to know what you're doing and uh, be proficient at your uh, hobby, whether it be boarding or skiing or, or sliding on your butt thousands of feet down to the, uh, the lunch rocks. So that's your basic anatomy. Now, I, I read over this story. This happened on May 30th. And 
as I read the story, I, I break it down personally into four different sections. That there's the initial contact with the patient and the dispatch of all the rescue teams and EMS workers. Then there's an air game, which happens. And then there's a ground game. And then there's this side story about the weather, which we have to touch upon too. And uh, Sarah, I'm, I'm curious, where did you come into this story? Sure. So I was I was right there in, uh, in section one, if you will. Um, so basically, my friends and I, we hiked up Sluice. And two of my friends, you know, skied down, they made it to the lunch trucks, no problem. Um, and the patient and his son were actually hiking up like the left side of Sluice throughout this. And so I start to go, I take a couple turns, I actually fall and start sliding towards the rocks. And luckily, I stop. How far up were you? Uh, pretty close to the top. So it was right where it gets narrow. Yeah. And then where it goes, um, it gets a little bit wider towards like the base and everything. Um, and so mm-hmm. luckily, I stopped right at the rocks and my ski came off, but you know, I was unharmed. And I pick okay. up my ski and I look down and I make like a silly little face and pump my fists up in the air because I knew my friends were watching down the lunch rocks. And then I hear mm-hmm. yelling and I look to my left and I see this man sliding feet first towards me on the rocks. Yeah. <laughs> um, and this ended up being the victim. Mm-hmm. Yep. So he's sliding feet first. He's maybe five feet up from where I am. And he hits the rocks and just goes boom, 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 boom. You know, just starts tumbling down them. And then, you know, land. So you saw the fall? Oh, it was right in front of me. You know, I was almost patient number two, you know. I'm really lucky that I stopped where I did. This was approximately at one twenty p.m. or so, or one one ish, somewhere around there. Yeah. So the the story that I read is that apparently the father and son this was their third run on uh, Sluice, correct? I don't think it was their third run on Sluice. It was their third run of the day, and I guess he was trying to transition, and his ski slipped, and then he slipped, and he fell four hundred feet, mm-hmm. according to the report. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. They had no crampons. Nope. And he wasn't wearing a helmet either. I, I think a lot of people don't wear helmets. Uh, Jeff, can you speak to that? What's the helmet usage in Tux? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's it's changed a lot since you know 2015. I mean, I haven't been skiing mm-hmm. in Tux for a long time, but there's a lot more people that are skiing now and a lot more people wearing helmets. However, you always get the, uh, let's just say veteran skiers, you know, older guys who couldn't even imagine putting a helmet on on a beautiful spring day. So you get that kind of two schools of thought there on the helmet. Okay. And Sarah, how big of a like how big of a group were you skiing with and do you go to Tuckerman's a lot? Um there were 8 of us up that day, but there were like 10 or 11 of us like as a whole group, but only, you know, 8 of us or 7 of us actually ended up going up sluice. In a normal winter, I like to get there more than I did this year. I now live in Connecticut. I used to live in Boston. Now I'm in Connecticut. So it's a little bit harder to get up and with COVID and everything, not quite as frequent. Yeah. And it was it like, I, I've never been, I've never done the Tuckerman, like going to ski and that whole thing. And I've always wanted to just hike up there. Like, and I got some, Jeff actually helped me get some backcountry skis. So I do have them, but I just haven't really got into it as much as I had hoped. Uh, but was it like a party scene? Like I've seen pictures where there's like hundreds of people on the lunch rocks and stuff. Was it that kind of vibe on the, on this day? It was not. It was kind of overcast. There was a uh, forecasted rain in the afternoon. It was supposed to start around two o'clock, I think, or three. Um, so our plan was, you know, get up there, get our run in, two run, you know, however many runs you want, and then get back down before the rain came in. 
and it was kind of an overcast day all day. So there weren't that many people up in Tux. I expected a lot more. Um, we were the only big ski party besides the patient. There was a ski patroller who also happened to be in the bowl at the same time. And mm-hmm. there were a couple parties of hikers on the lunch rocks, just kind of watching everything. Okay. So did you tend to the patient or did the Mount uh, Washington volunteer ski patrol jump right in? Uh, no, I was the first one there. Um, I just, you know, as soon as I saw him stop moving, I just screamed mm-hmm. as loud as I could down towards my friends who were at the rocks, like, get help, get help, and pointed towards Hojo's and then just ran down to him. Um, and luckily, my friends skied down. They were right there in an instant as well. And we just, you know, started assessing the situation. We could tell that he wasn't breathing very well. So we, you know, stabilized his neck and everything and got him into the recovery position as best we could being on mm-hmm. rocks <laughs> that were not not the most comfortable or the best uh, setup necessarily. But we got him in a good position and then just kind of started assessing for more damage, um, any broken limbs. And luckily, we didn't find anything super serious aside from a couple good head wounds. Now, when did... Um the ski patrol and the ranger come into the picture. Ski patrol got there maybe 10, 20 minutes later. Honestly, my whole sense of time throughout this whole thing is just so um, out of whack, but he was there fairly quickly. And so, you know, he radioed down. My boyfriend was actually at the lunch rocks. He had already run down to the ski patrol cabin and let them know. Um, And so he started hauling up gear from the different caches and everything. Um, But ski patrol was on site pretty quickly and yeah, just started saying, okay, we need to get this, we need to get that, mm-hmm. and just helped us kind of stabilize him a little bit further and get more of the medical supplies that we needed. Our friends, a couple of our friends ran up from the lunch rocks. One has done a wilderness first responders course, and another two are actually ski patrollers. So they ran up and helped with kind of the the assessment of everything. So all things considered, like this dude probably picked a pretty good place to, to, to wipe out and fall, fall in front of like a, a crew of like, I mean, it would have been better obviously if he fell in front of a helicopter, but like all mm-hmm. things considered, like you guys were a pretty good group to, to, to be around. Yeah. Yeah. He definitely lucked out. I'm not, I haven't taken a wilderness first responders course, but I do work in the healthcare field. I'm an occupational therapist. So I was like, okay, we need to be concerned about his head. We need to be concerned about his spine. We are going to move him as little as we possibly can until we get a sea collar on him. So you're somewhat prepared for this mentally then to, to deal with it. Yes. Yeah. Luckily, um, you know, everyone kept calm. Nobody, even my friends who were like squeamish about blood and everything, had no problems. Everyone was just like, okay, we need a task. You know, what are we going to do? You know, the ski patroller did a really good job of, you know, delegating everything and saying, okay, you're going to go get this. I need you guys, you pair, go down and do this. Um, do you have any insight as to who uh, made the decision that the individual needed to go by helicopter and get extracted? I think the ski, the original ski patroller did. That's the next phase of the story. Um, they had to extract this person out. Mm-hmm. Apparently, according to the report, this is about 2.20 p.m., um, there were no air ambulances. That's what the report says. And then later on, it says that the air helicopters or ambulances uh, were unable to get in because of the weather. Mm -hmm. So it looked like there was only one uh, option available, and that's the U.S. uh, Coast Guard. Can you tell us about that a little bit? Sure. So 
Um, you know, like I said, the rain was forecasted to come in around two or three o'clock and it did. <laughs> so Tux yeah. was totally socked in. And so no one could fly in. And so we, because exactly. I think in a normal, well, more normal uh, rescue situation, they would have just flown right to the, like to the lunch rocks. Um, mm-hmm. But because of the weather and everything, we had to carry him down to Hermit Lake, which was a whole super interesting experience. And yet another reason that I'm just so grateful that we were there. Um, you know, my group of 11, 11 friends, because I don't know how they would have gotten him down as quickly as we did. Yeah, the report really talks highly of you guys, and it, it talks about 20 to 30-year-olders uh, that just jumped in, and they had to master the litter really quickly. And, um, you know, being in search and rescue, it caught my eye that you guys had to learn handoffs uh, or pass-offs mm-hmm. on a couple of really steep sections, and... Um, that's pretty cool. I mean, I've seen it myself where people just get pulled into um, a rescue and assist on the litter, and it's not an easy thing at first. You know, you can really hurt yourself carrying those things. So, can you tell us about the the, the process from the floor of the ravine down to Hermit? Sure. So, um, we were lucky that we had, you know, a couple really good, really strong ski patrollers with us, and they knew exactly what to do, and they were really good at communicating. Okay, if you don't, if you're not ready, say before we pick up the litter and everything, let us know. Mm-hmm. And so they were really good at, at explaining everything. All right, we need three people on each side. You're going to hold a rope, you know, to help offset the weight and everything. Mm-hmm. And he did a really good job of explaining how the pass-throughs work. And luckily, you know, the majority of the rescuers were our group of friends. So we already established, had that established rapport and communication and everything. Um, so it actually ended up flowing really easily. Yeah, and there were sufficient numbers to offset the need for a belay because typically they would tie a belay just for safety just in case the litter would slide or somebody would fall and the patient would get injured. So Exactly. Yeah, I think every time we went to change, you know, after you work mm-hmm. or you walk a certain amount of yards or, you know, a really tricky narrow, you know, classic New England trail, mm-hmm. uh, we would stop and switch out. And I think we had enough numbers to switch out almost entirely every single time. Good. Now, what happened when you guys finally got down to um, the hut or the shelter? How long did it take before the Jayhawk showed up? It took a little while. So there were paramedics there waiting, which was good. They came from Weymouth. The The Coast Guard did, yeah. That's sort of a hike for a copter to travel. It took a bit. I don't think, I think the report said the Helicopter didn't get there until like 5.30 or something. I think we probably must have gotten him down to Hermit Lake, I would guess, maybe 4.30, 4, somewhere around mm-hmm. then. Um, and, you know, that it was, we passed him off to the paramedics. We went into the ski patrol cabin, you know, kind of took off our wet layers, started to dry off, got food and uh, water into us because, you know, none of us had really eaten or had a chance to do that since it all started. Um, and here's where I need to interject because this is, this is where it gets really interesting for rescuers. Helicopters on the way, weather's rolling in, mm-hmm. you guys are wiped out, you want to head down the Sherburn or whatever just to get it, Shelburne, Sherburn. It is actually Sherburn. I messed up. So yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> we're going we're gonna to cut that part out. Stomp. <laughs> the Sherb. So, yes, you're right. So, you... Yes. So instead of you guys splitting, you hung out because I'm 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 guessing maybe some somebody whispered in your ear that hey, this helicopter may not be able to make it in here, so we may need you still. So that would have changed it 
from just, you know, an extraction to having to carry this person out. Mm -hmm. And that's why I gave the numbers of the elevation because it's really interesting. You have the floor of the head wall is 4,400 feet. Okay, so that's essentially what the report says that the ceiling of, of the weather was. So you have this weather rolling in, it's, it's overcast, it's white out from 4,400 feet up. So this helicopter, you know, helicopters generally can't fly in that weather. So you have this tight window between 4,400 feet and uh, Hermit Lake, which is 3,900 feet. So you have this really small window of opportunity where this helicopter can come in and extract this person, you know, drop a paramedic, stabilize them, get them in a litter, and take off. So that's where the rescuers come in. It's, it's highly possible that that window could have closed, making it impossible for that Coast Guard helicopter to get this person out. So yeah, I just wanted to add that in because, it, you know, I've been in those situations and it's you, it's nail-biting. It's like, oh, my God, this, this you can look up and see the ceiling mm-hmm. dropping mm-hmm. and you're waiting for a helicopter. It's, mm-hmm. yeah, and, and meanwhile, this person's suffering. So, yeah. um, can you tell us about the weather and what the what the ceiling was doing and, you know, how the, the helicopter operated with the paramedic and stuff like that? Sure, so getting to see the Jayhawk was like, the coolest thing. Um, I grew up around the, the DC area, so I'm familiar with helicopters. I've I've heard helicopters, you know, for a long time, but I've never been that close to one before. Yeah. Um, and so basically, yeah. So we kind of t- checked in with the ski patroller and we're like, "Hey, you know, it seems like everything's going well. The Coast Guard's on the way. Is it okay if we leave?" And he was like you know what would you guys mind just sticking around for a little bit longer just in case this cut like dun, dun, dun. just in case they come and for whatever <laughs> reason you know they can't get him out no problem yeah absolutely the plot you know <laughs> we're here like what are we are we going to be those people who just leave absolutely not um and so we waited mm-hmm. and you hear the helicopter before you know because it's totally socked in so you can't see much you see just above the trees yeah. and then you hear the of the of the helicopter and then you just see it just uh, like peer mm-hmm. right over the tree line and he just kind of yeah. circles around really slowly hovering you know 10 feet i swear above the trees and then mm-hmm. goes in like the clearing right next to hermit lake drops the paramedic then the line comes back up and he just goes and he waits over by the pond kind of where the um the ski patrol cabin is and he just hovers mm-hmm. there and just saves in like the same spot and then goes over, you know, drops something else, drops the litter after a little bit, goes back over. It was just incredible to get to watch the precision and the control of the pilot and also oh, yeah. the sheer force and wind and power that the helicopter generated was mm-hmm. incredible. Like we were Did you get a nice exfoliation? Oh my god, you talk about exfoliation. <laughs> I think everything got exfoliated. <laughs> it yeah, was incredible. It's like, so funny. It was like being in a hurricane. You know, you're leaning your whole body into the wind and you're not moving. Um, yeah. The trees are all just shaking back and forth. And Yeah, I liken it to a uh, King Kong movie when Kong's bashing through the forest and the trees are swaying left and right like 30 feet. It looks just like it that. Does. No joke. It does. There are waves coming off of the pond. You know, it's just... It's wild. Yeah. It was wild to watch. And then see them, you know, come back over, drop the lid or drop the line, pick up the paramedic, you know, bring him back in and then come back for the patient. Mm. Um, yeah. And then off they go. Off they go. Boom. Boom. As quick as possible. And they're gone in an instant. Yeah. And Sarah, I have a question for you. So this, the, it, this was a father and son duo. So the son was, was he helping out the whole time? 
No. So he actually, I lost track of him because I just stayed with the patient, with the father. Mm -hmm. Um, But he went down first to Hermit Lake, I think with one of our friends. And then he went down to the Pinkham Notch Visitor Center where he was kind of waiting, you know, at their car and everything for the next move. You know, where is he going to be sent to? What do I do? And all that stuff. So, but the poor kid, he had to wait for a, a while. Um, yeah, he was probably communicating with the family, and they maybe they mm-hmm. told him like, "Look, you know, we've got this covered, and he's stable, and you know, we're going to get him out of here, and we'll keep keep communicating with you." Pretty much, yeah. I know that they were in touch with the ski patrollers mm-hmm. and Pinkham Notch and everything. They were, you know, radioing back and forth. Yeah, Stomp. Do you know? Like, is that a thing? Like, do they do mm-hmm. they like? In these rescue situations, do they look at like the family members and sort of try to get them separated if they've got the victim stabilized so that they're not dealing with the family member if they're if they could be like upset or something or is it there's no is there any like strategy to that or do you have no idea? Sometimes it depends on the situation. Very cool. So once once he exits from the helicopter, you you still have a, a ways to go, right, Sarah? You got to get out of there and then figure out where you're going to go eat and you probably didn't sleep too well that night, right? <laughs> no, we slept really well. Yeah. Um, yeah, we were all like, oh my gosh, you know, it was after six o'clock at this point. I think it was closer to 6.30 or 7. So we had to hike back down. You know, everyone has, at this point, we're all hiking. There's no snow left on the trail. So it's yeah. not like you can just ski down the sherb. Yeah. Um, so we hike out. But luckily, we had a friend who was back at the house that we were staying at. And he, we were finally able to get in touch with him and kind of let him know what was going on. Um, and he had a fantastic meal waiting for us when we all got back which was amazing (laughs) yeah he crushed it oh my gosh it was so good very cool and then when the when the news reports came out were you (laughs) because the news reports came out and the the avalanche center gave you guys like a huge shout out like i've the specific comments that they said here is and stomp touched on this before but it said one of the more important lessons of this incident comes from the bystanders who assisted this group of 20 to 30 year olds jumped in to assist suffering in the cold drizzle to render first aid and then carry the litter to hermit lake where they then waited patiently to confirm that they wouldn't be needed to carry the litter should the helicopter fail to arrive Anybody having an accident would be lucky to have this group of solid individuals to assist them. So you're, you're a hero, Sarah. <laughs> mm. Yeah, no question. All of you. I mean, we just did, I think, what anybody would do when you're right there. You just, you can't leave Absolutely. like that, you know. Um, but I definitely, after seeing all my mm-hmm. friends in this kind of a situation, we do a lot of more dangerous things together. You know, we go on pretty crazy mountain biking adventures and ski touring adventures, and I would trust them even more so with my life now than I did before. Um, and we're all, you know, working on signing up for a wilderness first responders course because this just sparked the conversation of, oh my gosh, like I didn't know what to do in this situation or we didn't have the appropriate supplies. And that was one of my biggest takeaways was you need to be prepared, not just for your own emergency, but for somebody else. Yeah. You know? Exactly. Um, That's kind of the theme tonight, right? And it seems Mm -hmm. to be coming up quite a bit. Now you, so you're into, so you've done backcountry skiing, you do mountain biking. What, uh, what do you think it is about like sort of these more adrenaline focused activities that, that, that appeal to you? 
I just love going along with my friends and getting to see cool things. That's what I'm in it for. I'm not a huge adrenaline junkie. I'm the one in the back who just takes it slow the whole time. Yeah, yeah. So you just hooked <laughs> um, up with a bunch of crazy friends and you, they drag you along. Exactly. But I love it. It's so much fun. And um, yeah, everyone's just, they're all great and good friends. Good group. Will you change your, your activities now based upon this or at all or modify your risk level? Um, Probably be more risk focused and definitely our packs are all going to be a lot heavier mm-hmm. because we're all going to be over prepared now um i think only you know two of us had crampons <laughs> and ice axes and we all should have had crampons and ice axes up on tucks that day yeah um and yeah you know only a few of us had med kits so now we all have med kits <laughs> so i think our bags just got a little bit heavier but I don't think we're going to stop doing what we're doing because we love it. Yeah, yeah. Congratulations. And thanks for coming in to share it with us. I'm always kind of curious to know. I don't, like I said, I don't know much about what goes on in Tuckerman in that sort of ski season. So it's, it's good to hear like a deep dive on a story like this. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. So anything else on this stomp or do we want to transition into, I, I want to do a segment with Jeff to talk about some of his mountaineering uh, adventures. No, let's move on. I, I do just a little quick little note. If if you read the report, it says that uh, U.S. Forest Service Rangers briefed the U.S. Coast Guard for over an hour to get ready for this before they even, I, I believe, before they even launched from Weymouth. Um, so that's pretty interesting because that's the first I've seen the U.S. Coast Guard come up into the whites. I've only been doing this for several years now, but still, it's, it's sort of rare occurrence, so... Um, maybe not necessarily their their terrain. Let's yeah, put it that way. I would agree. I I'm just curious myself. I'm going to do some digging and find out for uh, the audience. Yeah, definitely wasn't their usual. Yeah, and they must have taken the patient to Portland, right? Because I'm assuming I think the helicopter flew over our our house at like six or six thirty or something, and it had to be going to Portland because it's like a direct line from Tuckerman to Portland mm-hmm. where we're like right, right in between it. So yeah, I couldn't yeah. believe it. We were sitting there eating dinner and I'm like looking up and I'm like, why is there a Coast Guard helicopter in the middle of <laughs> Western Maine? It was crazy. What's going on? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, no, he went to Maine Med. All right. Well, so this was great, Sarah. Again, thank you so much. Slasher's hiking topic of the week. So we're going to transition back to Jeff. We're going to talk a little bit about some of his mountaineering adventures because we don't really get a chance. I don't really personally know that many people that have actually done legit mountaineering activity. So we want to get into some details there. But before we do get into that, Jeff, you, um, you're probably like one of the most experienced backcountry skiers that I know as well. So one of the things I had in my notes here, and Sarah, you can hop in on this if you have any thoughts, is I did want to go back to the avalanche that occurred on the Amanusik Ravine back in like, I think it was like January or February this year. There was a, a very experienced backcountry skier that unfortunately, um, this, you know, he yeah. he had an accident where he got um, – you know, caught in an avalanche and unfortunately did not survive that event. And I've been over on that side a couple of times on Mount Washington. So the Amanusik Ravine is on the opposite side of where Tuckerman Ravine is. Um, and I feel like it's not as common to like ski in that area, although I don't really know enough about it to comment. But Jeff, I would be curious to know, I'm sure that you had some familiarity with this this area and, you know, heard of this case. But, you know, related to that, that incident that happened in like January, February, just to refresh the audience, this was like a, a scenario where it was a solo backcountry skier. It was sort of a, 
a 50-50 sort of avalanche risk type of day where it could, you know, it could have been okay, but it, it ended up being bad. But I, I don't know, Jeff, do you have any comments on that? Or do you have any recollection on that event? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I did read about the fatality in ammo. Yeah, it, I think it was midwinter. So, of course, you know, anytime you're going backcountry skiing, midwinter is always uh, more risky since the snowpack hasn't become um, stable, right? So if you're skiing in the spring in Tuckerman Ravine, um, usually the snowpack has consolidated to the point where it won't slide. Um, you know, you can head up with confidence that none of that will happen, which I think is something that, you know, needs to be known with, you know, the newer backcountry skiers. Um, usually people aren't skiing a ton of avalanche terrain midwinter, especially if you go out west. It's uh, really, really dangerous. And a lot of the, the backcountry skiing happens in the spring. Um, not to say that this, you know, individual was making a bad decision. You know, I've skied midwinter in the whites a lot, but the uh, the risks are much higher due to um, snowpack variations with snowfall, right? So in the spring when it's all consolidated, there's no new snow, um, it's much safer. And with this particular case, um, this guy could have skied with, you know, a whole team of people um, with shovels, but he was buried I believe it was like a stomp. Do you remember the specifics? Was it like 30 feet or something? I know you, you read a lot of the rescues. I want to say 20, like at least 14 to 20. 20, yeah. Yeah. Something, something incredibly deep, which, you know, just to get, to, just to dig down into that amount of snow takes, I would assume, hours, um, even with a real good team. So I think what happened was, you know, ammo is a bit of a terrain trap, and I don't think the avalanche was very large, but his um, his ending point and the snow that came behind him buried him to an extent where it's just, uh, you know, incredibly deep. And it would have been very hard for him to be saved, uh, regardless if, if he was solo or not. Do you feel like you've ever done any sort of solo backcountry skiing where you've you've sort of crossed into that heavy risk area, or do you you kind of stay away from it and you, you know, you, you stay in groups and, and, and don't, don't like to accept that kind of risk. Right. I'm, I'm very fortunate. I've got a, you know, dedicated uh, set of buddies who, you know, are pretty experienced, namely one of my buddies, Alex, I mostly backcountry ski with him. I do a lot of the big expeditions with him. Um, we're kind of on the same page. He's a little bit more full throttle than me sometimes. And I gotta, I gotta wave the white flag, but, uh, you know, we, we definitely, I, I never ski solo unless it's, you know, the Cog Railway or the Sherburn or some of the Granite Backcountry Alliance glades. Um, I'm just, you know, there's, there's uh, the, the experience is best when shared. And that's so true when you're in avalanche terrain. <laughs> um, you know, you want a buddy there because even when the day forecast is low, um, you know, things can still slide. So it, it really depends on, uh, on your buddies out there to, you know, have, first of all, the discussion on risk, right? I mean, that's, that's where it all starts. Um, do, does everyone feel comfortable skiing the slope in this condition? Um, and that's really where the majority of accidents are prevented, right? Just having, having the idea, you know, being educated with an area one 
and being able to discuss snowpack with your friends is uh, is key. Very good. Yeah. So unfortunately, that, that was a that was a tough situation. And it was kind of a unique situation. Like you just don't hear of backcountry skiing solo accidents like that. And I think I just was very curious while I had you on to get your get your perspective on it because you've you're probably like I said the most experienced backcountry skier I know. So. So that's good. So I did want to transition into talk a little bit about sort of your high mountaineering experience. So I think everybody's familiar with Denali, um, but can you just talk a little bit about like, can you run down quickly um, some of the sort of the, the high mountains that you've, you've, you've climbed or skied? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so, right. Started off with Denali. Um, after that, we went to Bolivia. We climbed uh, three different 6,000 meter peaks. Um, after that year, we went and did Rainier, Mount Hood, and Mount St. Helens. Um, we got uh, into actually another search and rescue scenario, Mount St. Helens, uh, which I can save or go into a little bit. I don't know how much time we have, but um, basically there was a buddy or, or a fellow, not a buddy, that was yelling uh, because he had fallen into like a snow crack. And we ended up leaving our trail of wands because it was very low visibility. And uh, this guy was right near our track and he ended up following our wands down the slope. Um, eventually, you know, self rescuing himself. Hmm. Um, and he had, you know, a broken ankle or something like that. Um, so we weren't directly involved with the person, but um, we figured we can uh, leave a trace here to help somebody else out. Um, and then notified the the rescue people, but uh, it all turned out great. Um, and then after that, we went to, I think it was Mount Sanford was the next year. Um, that's a uh, close to 17,000 foot peak in the Wrangell-St. Elias range. Um, and we weren't able to summit that one. We were uh, just absolutely beat down by weather. Um, Alaska is definitely one of the roughest places in the world, I can say for sure, um, after that trip. Is this, this the um, same? Just like Mount Washington. Yeah, and this is the same crew of people that you go with every, every time, or does the crew switch up a little bit? Uh, so Mount Sanford, I had a bit of different crew. There were four of us. Um, and with that kind of mountain, um, it's good to have four people, right? So you can have a big rope team. And, you know, Sanford, for anyone who's not familiar, um, hasn't had a summit. At least when we went the previous three years, no one had summited. And the year we went, uh, nobody did either. I think the year after, a team um, was able to make the summit, though. So it's, it's a relatively uh, low traffic peak. So what that means is you want a rope team that's bigger because you're actually going to do a uh, real scenario route finding versus a peak like Denali where there's so much traffic that the route is uh, pounded out and you may, may be able to use uh, protection that's already placed by guide services. Got it. Now, I have a question about Denali for you because I just read an article, which I'll um, I'll put it in the show notes, but uh, there was like a warning from the uh, the mountain service folks about um, a couple of trends that they saw on Denali this year, uh, one of which was that I guess they had a lot of people that were starting their summit pursuit from 14,000 feet instead of going to high camp, which is at 17,000 feet. And then they also called out that they were seeing a number of ad hoc teams being created due to team members getting injured and people dropping out. Wow. So they were basically teams that were unfamiliar. So I didn't know, do you have any perspective on that? Well, uh, yeah, I actually did summit from 14K. We skipped the 17,000 foot camp. 
And I think that's an excellent decision in my mind. Um, if you're trained for it and you're able to do a big summit day, uh, most problems happen on the upper mountain. So if you got to haul three days worth of food and fuel and a tent and all that stuff to 17,000 feet, spend more time at altitude where it's extremely cold, extremely windy. Um, it just doesn't make sense to me if you're able to, one, bring skis to aid you in your descent, and two, uh, you're able to climb that 6,000 feet at altitude um, without, you know, I guess, uh, losing energy or bonking, if you will. Um, so I, I, I will say I did read that article, Mike. I know, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, so I, I kind of disagree with the, the idea that a safe summit day always starts at 17K. But again, you know, it worked out well for me. It may not work out well for a lot of other climbers that aren't skiing. So um, that's my take on that one section. Uh, for the for the ad hoc teams, to me, that's absolutely ridiculous. I am very selective of partners. I don't go on these peaks with just anybody. Um, you know, your life's on the line. If they don't know how to self-arrest, like if you slip into a crevasse, I mean, there's there's a, a variety of things that can happen. You just want to know the person, and you also want to be, you know, compatible in terms of personality. So that's always a question mark with ad hoc teams. Got it. And then one question I have about Denali that I'm always kind of interested in. So do you, you didn't go with it. Well, actually, do you need a guide? Is it one of those mountains where you have to have a guide supporting you in order to get a, get a permit or could you go on your own? Yeah, no, thankfully uh, that nonsense hasn't hit this peak yet. Although it seems to be trending that way. Uh, mountains that require guides are a little funny to me. Um, you know, if they require guides, you're inviting more inexperienced people to climb the peak. Um, if there are no guides, usually only experienced people step foot in terrain like that. So it's uh, it's an interesting way of regulating a mountain, um, and I'm not sure that it makes the mountain safer. Uh, however, Denali, I think at least in 2015, it was about 50-50 guided independent groups, and the summit rate um, was obviously a lot lower for the guided groups than the self-guided groups. Hmm. Interesting. So that that's interesting. So basically, as far as starting low, your perspective is is that if you're an experienced team and you're in shape, then sort of going, I don't want to say like light and fast, but like you can you can approach it from that fourteen thousand foot level and get up there quickly and then ski down. Well, I, I will say there's there's absolutely nothing light and fast about Denali if you're doing it safely you know our summit day we had a negative 20 degree sleeping bag in my pack i had an 8,000 meter parka in my pack i had puffy pants in my pack i had a shovel you know all these things that would allow you to survive if something were to go wrong are in my pack so you know you're getting rid of the tent you're getting rid of the stove and sometimes people even bring stoves up in order to resupply water but we had seven liters uh in our backpack so um there's nothing light and fast about that ascent it is lighter than carrying a camp to 17 i think it reduces the amount of exposure you have on the upper mountain got it all right that makes sense so again i have no clue about mountaineering but so it sounds like your pack is still like a little bit lighter than stomp state pack to get yeah. up to the green leaf hut <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's yeah. the super glue that weights me down. Yeah, exactly. 
<laughs> well, Stomp's got this, what, 115-liter low alpine with a 45-pound weight in it, if I remember correctly. <laughs> yeah, I took out the uh, the 10-pound dumbbell weights to uh, lighten yeah. it up a little bit. Right. He's, he's, he's right there with the heavy packs, yeah. But um, I had a question. Do you, I mean, how do you factor in getting used to the altitude and whatnot? Do you have enough time for these trips to get used to the altitude? Or There's a variety of things that factor into that. I, I will say, you know, the... The Bolivia trip and the Rainier trip, we were just pushing it, and I definitely found my limit. I was skiing at like 20,000 feet five days after being in Boston. Yeah, that's what I mean. I felt like a freight train hit me after that. <laughs> oh, um, so, yeah, it was it was absolutely, um, you know, that that's where we pushed it. That's where I found my limit, and that's where I kind of figured out that uh, I'm never going to do that style of climbing again. Just living at sea level, it doesn't make sense. Um, but on Denali, was it gassing out or was it sickness or what exactly was your limit? Uh, I, the limit was you can take a couple turns on your skis and then you got to breathe for just as long as you skied. So it turns the, the exciting downhill into, you know, uh, a labor intensive, uh, game of making decisions <laughs> based on where you are skiing, how steep it is, you know, things like that. Sorry. So Mount Sanford. So I followed you on this trip. Like you po- you were posting some good updates on this, if I recall correctly. So I'm assuming you you got a, you have a private like flight onto the the sort of the base of the mountain to get to Sanford. And then are you? My impression from looking at those updates is you guys were the only ones on the mountain, and you had to basically take all of your supplies and logistics with you, and that was it. Right? Is that a fair assessment? Like it was just four or five of you in in a des- sort of a deserted area of Alaska, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, regarding, you know, bringing everything that you need, um, regardless of how populated the peak is, you still want to have that kind of mindset, right? So on Denali, you land, you've got everything you need. Maybe you use a guide services picket or something like that. Maybe you trade food. Um, but the the mindset is the same if you're on Denali or or in Sanford. You want to pack for everything you need for the next three weeks um, in that in that environment. So yeah, for us, we we landed. Um, we flew in from Chistochina in a absolute dirt bike of a plane. Um, I forget the model, which uh, I'm usually good with aerospace stuff, but now I'm forgetting okay. it. Um, it was a two seat um, bush plane, Piper Cub, I think is the name of it. Um, and we flew in, uh, you know, ourselves to start, and then we had two flights for gear, um, just because the plane isn't able to carry a human plus, you know, a hundred and whatever pounds of gear in at the same time. So that kind of gives you a little bit of perspective of how much you need and how small the plane is. You know, it's the, the side of the plane. If you had a knife, you could just poke right through it. <laughs> what are the what's the pilot like? I just picture this like crusty Alaskan guy with a giant beard that's like, uh, you're on your own. If I if I can't get back, you gotta save yourself. <laughs> Not quite. He was uh he was pretty high speed actually. He does a lot of flying, so they uh they like whipping around in their Piper Cubs and they're not old crusty Alaskans. I mean, having a plane up there is uh almost like having a car, depending on how remote you are. So, and with Sanford, so you, you had a plan. What was it? How much time did you give yourself to get up top and ski down? Uh, yeah. So three weeks, um, was, you know, our game plan. And I was going to touch base on the acclimating, um, you know, but 
Stomp had asked earlier. On peaks like Denali or Sanford, there's these there are these massive Alaskan giants, and you're you're going twelve fourteen thousand feet of vert in front of you when you land. Um, so what you're doing is you're double carrying. You're going up with you know twenty days of stuff. You're bearing it at your next camp, and then you have you know. Uh, three or four days of stuff at the current camp and then the next day you'll move your tent and all your camp gear up to where you buried your cache so this aids in acclimating because you're climbing high sleeping low climbing up sleeping where you buried your stuff and repeating the process until 14,000 feet and usually when you're at 14 at least on Denali you can take a breath Um, for Sanford we just we just experienced incredibly bad weather and uh, just, yeah, we're struggling to keep our tents from ripping apart for a while. So that uh, that kind of nicks the summit there. But the acclimating in Alaska is very friendly for anyone from sea level. Nice. Now, did you, how far along when you, how deep into Sanford, like how many days in did you sort of realize that like this was not going to be a summit situation and that you had to sort of change your, uh, your, your goals for that one? Sure. Yeah. Well, so the team actually split into two. We had uh, two buddies stay down low. Uh, they kind of had no faith um, for the summit, which, you know, was the right decision because we just got destroyed up at, uh, up at altitude. But Cam and I, we, uh, you know, I decided, well, I'm going to give it one good old, good, good college try. And uh, we'll skin up and see if we can, we can make uh, anything out of it. Maybe we'll get good weather. Um, so what happened was those guys kind of called it a few days earlier. Cam and I went up, spent, I think, I think four or five days trying to work the upper mountain and, uh, ended up turning around as, uh, worse weather moved in. Um, so that, that's kind of how it fell there. We, uh, we ended up splitting up, which I don't recommend, but I wasn't going to leave the peak without giving it a try. Yeah. Do you ever get like, uh, in fights with people? Like on these big three week oh yeah expeditions, like you you know you're sharing a tent and stuff like you just you light into each other or does it you know how how do you handle like those conflicts? yeah, there's definitely been some arguments uh in what's you know tent life or who's doing the chores or someone's uh relieving themselves way too close to your camp or some some crap like that, but uh you know yeah it, it's the mindset right, so you're out there you're in rural Alaska, you got to have, you got to have a good mindset regardless, um, both in relation to the people you're with and in relation to, you know, whatever is happening outside, whether it's a storm or rain or, you know, your sunburnt and it's another bluebird day, you know, so <laughs> it all depends on, uh, all depends on your mindset. So that's, that's really what I'd say about that. Wow. That's crazy. You, you are a crazy adventurer. So, um, You've, I know that you've, so you do the backcountry skiing, you know, crazy hiking stuff. I I know recently you've gotten into doing like sea kayak trips and you've been doing that for like the last couple of years. Um, you had posted that you're, you're planning on doing like an extended trip back to Alaska to do sea kayaking. Yeah, this actually, uh, <clears throat> wasn't on the long-term game plan, but, uh, this opportunity arose where I really couldn't pass up. Uh, so Freya Hoffmeister is a, Incredibly successful sea kayaker. She circumnavigated Iceland, Australia, South America, and she's working on uh, circumnavigating North America over 10 years. Um, 
So these these trips are absolutely massive, and I'm joining her for a small speck of a much bigger goal. Um, and what we'll be doing is kayaking from Wales, Alaska to Barrow, Alaska, and I'll be joining her for six to eight weeks. Uh, her method has been, uh, you know, when the ice is out in the northern climates, she'll paddle the three months that she can there. And then when the ice is in, in the northern climate, she'll paddle on the southern part of North America. Wow. Now, um, I'm assuming, like, I looked at the map, so this is basically like the the western and northern edge of, of Alaska that you're going to be going on. So I'm assuming, like, when you stop, it's going to be, like, Inuit tribe, tribal land, and, like, there's legit, like, polar bears and stuff that you got to worry about there, right? Right, right. There are a few uh, different towns. You know, we'll pass Kotzbue, uh, which will be on the radio nice. uh, in July there. So little plug for Kotzbue radio. Listen, uh, online and uh you know as we move up the coast there's you know it'll be a week or two between villages and we'll see a lot of you know natives uh inuit and then as well as we'll probably see maybe some polar bears you know polar bears usually hang around where there's ice um and we're expecting that we'll only get some ice maybe at the northern um end of our trip however uh you know, we're prepared. We've, we've got that, uh, what's it called? Polar bear fence that you set up with like fishing line. And if they walk close to your tent, it shoots a blank 12 gauge cartridge to wake you up and hopefully scare the bear. So we'll be setting that up. What is this again? Explain this to me. Sarah, have you ever heard of this? No, this is a new one for me. Wait a minute. So it's a polar bear fence. Exactly. So explain <laughs> this to me like I'm a five-year-old because I don't know what you're talking about. It's like a walking dead barrier. So you're camping in polar bear terrain. You go night-night. Polar bears don't go night-night. They walk to your tent. They trip a wire that you've set up and it shoots a really loud bang off. Um, so the idea is when you go to bed at night, there's a fence around your tent that if anything were to come and walk towards your tent, it would uh, alert you before it got there. It's a early warning system for uh, dangerous uh, animals. I would never sleep. I would never sleep in Alaska in that situation. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, the chances are ultra slim where we are. She's doing the northern coast of Alaska, and that's going to be... I think where she's really going to want that to be set up, but it's also a precaution that, uh, you know, we can take and, and we will. Uh, and the, you know, if you set it off yourself, all it is is a loud bang. There's no danger. Um, so yeah. Wow. That's, that's crazy. So is there like, do you have, um, I know you had some sponsors and like, are you going to be like, um, like updating on this, this kayak trip or anything? Is there anything you want to plug? Yeah, so FreyaHoffmeister.com, um, she's extremely famous. I am not, so she'll be she'll be posting, you know, the uh, the trip reports and the pictures and uh, the media. Um, you know, I had to sign a couple waivers for her. She's writing a book, and you know, the the content that I create, you know, has to be uh, given to her in terms of pictures and things like that. So. I'm really joining uh, a, a well-funded and well-sponsored trip myself, um, and the boat is already in Wales, Alaska, which is the largest logistical problem um, in paddling in this area. Oh, wait. So wait a minute. So are, you're in the kayak. So is there like a boat that follows you guys around to help with logistics, or you, do you have to take everything yourself and resupply? <laughs> 
Uh, by boat, I meant kayak. Okay. So yeah, it's just us two in two kayaks. All right. Yep. Uh, they're 18 feet, 10 inches, and they hold more than you could ever carry on your back and tow in a sled. Really? So it's uh, it's very nice in that regard. These are these are very uh, you know they look like they're designed by NASA. They're carbon Kevlar slipstream boats, but they obviously hold a lot of gear uh, in the dry hatches. Sarah has also oh, been. And how many miles a day do you do? Uh, well, we'll be doing about forty kilometers. And I was about to say, Sarah knows how much gear you can bring in a sea kayak. She's been on a couple of our, couple of our paddles. Um, it's it's a lot. <laughs> it's incredible. You have the bougiest camping when you go sea kayaking. Really? So, what do you think about this whole yeah. thing? Is he gonna is he gonna get eaten by a polar bear? Like, what, what? If you have experience in this, I'd love to get your perspective. Well, I've never done anything like what Jeff is doing, but. Um, I think he's going to have a, a blast. A I think it's going to be blast. so cool. Um, we just do little like weekend trips off the coast of Maine. Okay. And the most that we have to worry about is some bugs. Got it. But the coast of Maine's still pretty rugged. Yeah. Yeah. A lot bigger tides off the coast of Maine. Um, you know, it, it can get pretty big. Wow. Wow. So you both are like legit heroes and then you're both like crazy <laughs> adventurers like i need to up my game stop you, you're even worse than me we need to although you do the bushwhacking i i do nothing i need to like get out and you guys need to take me on a sea, sea kayaking adventure that'd be fun you've got a pair of backcountry skis mike i do i do i got so tuckerman yeah, is on my out. list for next year and then i gotta get i have a kayak but i have a walmart kayak <laughs> that i use in the pond in maine <laughs> yeah, it's not going to work on the ocean, man. Yeah. Sorry. Wait a minute, Mike. You're committing to skiing tucks? I will. Like, I was looking at the map. <laughs> yeah. So, we, what route would I do? He's committing a, right here. So, I'm like a like a probably like a um you know a decent. I'm a pretty good resort skier. So, what what Sarah? What would be my like route on Tuckerman to start with to get my feet wet? Oh, I'm going to defer that one to Jeff. I don't know Tuckerman so well enough to answer that. All right. Where where am I skiing, Jeff? Well, it's it's definitely going to be depending on what's got the best snowpack. But, I mean, Left Gully is very approachable. And the best part about Tux, Mike, is you don't have to climb all the way up. You know, you can start wherever you'd like. Um, so you can ski half the bowl if, if that's your comfort level. Or you can, you know, go send the head wall. Or you can just ski the Sherburn. You know, you're backcountry skiing no matter what you're doing. So yeah. it's don't feel like you got to go absolutely – crazy the first time you go it's uh you know there's stuff there for everybody you just decide what you're comfortable with what about um what about that uh bowl just north of glen boulder south of tux what's that jimmy chaga went there this this year are you saying uh gulf of slides yeah, or yeah, gulf. Gulf? yes that that seems to be a, a, a moderate absolutely and there's uh if you go all the way far uh past um, Gulf of Slides, there's this area we call the bakery because it's a real solar oven, <laughs> but it's, you know, really mellow backcountry skiing. Um, and the slides in Gulf of Slides are also less steep than Tuckerman. So a lot of that's, uh, you know, like a black diamond or a double black at a resort. Nothing, I mean, nothing too crazy for backcountry skiing. Uh, just depends on the snow. 
All right. Well, if you don't get eaten by a polar bear, I'll definitely get up there next year. Nice. You know, my biggest fear about Tuckerman, though, is like I see all these pictures and like <laughs> I just don't want to eat shit and have a bunch of people on the lunch rocks like laugh at me as I'm falling down. <laughs> well, that's part of it. That's part of yeah, it. That's like I, your initiation. That, right. That's part of the experience. <laughs> all right. All right. All right. So, yeah, we'll, there you we'll go. Get that on video. Yeah. So, but no, this was great. And, um, you know, we're, uh, so we covered, we covered a lot here. So we covered like this. The rescue story, Jeff, that you talked about where, you know, you guys were able to sort of step in and, and luckily save those people was huge. Sarah, you and your friends stepping in to save that uh, that skier and Tuckerman. And then we learned all about like mountaineering and crazy sea kayaking. Um, I guess one last question I do have for you, Jeff, is I'm, I'm curious and I've never asked you this, but like, so you've done South America, you've done uh, a lot in North America. Do you have any plans to get to Europe or the Himalayas or do, do anything crazy like that in the future? Yeah, I'd absolutely love to uh, go out and ski a peak called Chishapangma in Western China. That's kind of my next uh, reach goal for ski mountaineering. But the thing is these opportunities um, they come up and you, you know, you have to line up the people, you have to line up vacations, you have to line up motivations. Um, so what, you know, you want to do as an individual isn't always what will happen um, in terms of what you want to do as an expedition. And, you know, when these opportunities come up, you got to take them. So um, that's a reach goal of mine, but we'll see all the cards fall, you know, anything could happen. And I'm going sea kayaking for a long time and I never thought that was going to happen. So yeah. Nice. Well, you, you're living the life, Jeff. I'm, I'm jealous, but I'm also not so jealous when I yeah, think about awesome. the polar bear situation. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, we'll, <laughs> exactly. But yeah, we'll keep an eye on the sea kayak trip. And then um, I will post all of this info that we talked about on the show notes. And uh, stop. Did we miss anything? Or are we good? No, I think we're good. I mean, just talking about a little bit of safety stuff, but I think we covered it with the uh, triggered rifle there ready to go. <laughs> that's, how yeah, he, yeah. that's how he keeps himself safe. <laughs> yeah. I honestly, I kind of want that set up for like just like hiking in the whites just so that like, nobody, oh, nobody yeah, approaches it. work me. out good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Early warning system. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So, all right. Well, again, Sarah, um, thank you so much. Jeff, thank you so much. And Thank you I'll, so much, guys. All this wrap. Yep. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to learn more about the topics covered on today's show, please check out the show notes and safety information on slasserpodcast.com. That's S-L-A-S-R podcast.com. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you'll join us next week for another great show. Until next time, on behalf of Mike and Stomp, get out there and crush some peaks. Now covered in scratches, blisters, and bug bites, Chris Staff wanted to complete his most challenging day hike ever. Fish and game officers say the hiker from Florida activated an emergency beacon yesterday morning. He was hiking along the Appalachian Trail when the weather started to get worse. Officials say the snow was piled up to three feet in some spots and there was a wind chill of minus one degree. And there's three words to describe this race. Do we all know what they are? Lieutenant James Neeland, New Hampshire Fish and Game. Lieutenant, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. What 
are some of the most common mistakes you see people make when they're heading out on the trails to hike here in New Hampshire? Seems to me the most common is being unprepared. And I think if they just simply visited uh, hikesafe.com and got a list of the 10 essential items and had those in their packs, they probably would have no need to ever call us at all.